Welcome back to the Jacob Wall Show. The Prime Minister of the UK resigning. That's the news that I read this morning as I awoke. Liz Truss serving just 44 days as Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. What a disastrous system that is that they have over there. Direct democracy, the parliamentary system. I will concede I am not uh, the expert when it comes to UK politics or the royal court. I don't follow that stuff terribly closely. The UK is not a very significant country on the world stage. That's the truth. That's the reality. I would say the UK's most significant contribution, insofar as the areas that we cover on this show and that I've covered for the last several years, is uh, A, their intelligence service is very involved in matters that are pertinent to the U.S. political system. We know that they spied on Trump. MI6 and MI5 were both involved in the Russiagate scandal, helping the CIA and FBI to set all of that up and set it all into motion. We know that. We also know that there are these uh, political commentators in the U.S. They exist on both sides of the aisle. There are apolitical uh, ones as well, or at least ostensibly apolitical commentators as well. And these people hail from the UK. We have seen these uh, UK citizens, uh, mostly Englishmen, uh, come over into the United States and comment on politics. People like Milo Yiannopoulos, uh, people like Raheem Kassam. Of course, he was an immigrant to the UK itself. He is a, uh, originally an Indian Muslim. Uh, and so many others, a lot of Canadians as well. Uh, but they find it uh, very much more lucrative to be political personalities here in the U.S. Perhaps their accent is something of a uh, novelty here, whereas it wouldn't be back in the U.K. Many of them are here in the U.S. on on very uh, sketchy visa situations. Many of them don't belong here at all. Uh, they, They seek out celebrity athlete visas and things like this. They do very bizarre things to set them up. Uh, on the right and left, and I've seen a lot of it. I don't understand it totally. So the point is, we don't follow UK politics very closely, but uh, Liz Truss has now resigned this morning. She took office, and one of her uh, principal sort of uh, pillars was that she was going to embrace diversity. This, of course, being the uh, conservative PM coming from the conservative party over there, as opposed to the Labour Party being the other side of the aisle as far as major parties in the UK. And she really hung her hat on diversity. She came out and said that uh, this would be the first, the first uh, prime minister in history to have no white men within her cabinet. Uh, Liz Truss's cabinet had zero white men. Uh, She put a a very diverse, I think he's, uh, what is he, Sri Lankan uh, man in, in charge of the economy. The economy has continued to worsen in the UK since she's taken office. She promised Reagan-esque trickle-down economics, tax cuts, etc. That hasn't exactly been popular. She pulled that proposal off the table. People quickly started calling for her resignation as the UK economy worsened. We've talked about on this show how uh, the UK gilt their 10-year treasury, their 10-year bond uh, or note, has uh, collapsed in the same way that the U.S. Treasuries have. In fact, even worse. We reported how uh, in the U.K., unlike in the U.S., 
their pension systems had levered long positions. Now, uh, you can talk about sort of notional leverage within the U.S. pension system, but typically you won't have situations in which uh, U.S. pensions will be just totally leveraged up within stocks or within bonds. They may have sub-investments within those funds. There's a little bit of leverage applied. But in the U.K., they had massive leverage, and they had to unwind some of these positions as the U.K. guilt collapsed further during Liz Truss's tenure. Now there's talk that perhaps Boris Johnson will come in and try to run again to replace her. The point is, what a clown show of a system. I mean, I will tell you, as bad as Joe Biden has been as president of the United States, I would respect him even less if he just bailed out 44 days into office or bailed out suddenly uh, as soon as things got bad. Thank God we don't have this kind of system here in the U.S. It really uh, creates a banana republic situation. It really creates a, a situation in which you can't have the kind of stability that's necessary to sustain a serious country on the world stage. I mean, look at the real serious players on the world stage. You have Russia, you have China, you have the United States of America. These systems all have one thing in common. There's a semblance of stability. Now, in the U.S., of course, we have congressional elections every two years. We're coming up on one of those very shortly. But at least when a president comes into office, they've got four years. I mean, that's something. Uh, in the uh, case of Russia, of course, well, they've got a system that is outwardly parliamentary, but of course we know it, it, it works a little bit less like that in reality. And Vladimir Putin's been in charge, at least in one form or other. Of course, there was a brief period where he had to step down and become prime minister rather than president, but people said he controlled the president. He's been over there for 20, oh God, 20, coming up on 21 years now, I think. In China, you have Xi, who has a very stable hold on power. And these are the significant countries. Now, you can have a baby country uh, where you can have a parliamentary system like this, but even in those countries, when they are able to exert some kind of significance on the world stage, it is because you have a stable executive uh, power structure. I mean, when, when the last time the UK was in any way significant was during the Iraq War. It was during the reign of Tony Blair. Uh, and he had a hold on power for some period of time. You look at Israel. Israel is a very small country, but man, do they throw their weight around in the world in a whole number of ways. And one of the ways that they have been able to uh, exert that kind of stability is that you look at their hold on power, and uh, Netanyahu was in power like Putin for something like 20 years. So you need this to have some kind of stability and to have some kind of significance to, to give uh, companies enough runway to set up operations, to give business, uh, big business, industry, enough time to uh, know what the environment's going to be like and adjust accordingly. You really can't do that when you have prime ministers coming in, resigning quickly, and all the rest. It's, it's totally out of control. Why do they resign? Uh, somebody writes in the chat here. What do they risk by refusing to leave office? Well, then they go into no-confidence votes and things like this. It essentially becomes an impeachment situation. Uh, and they, they remove people from power very quickly. One thing about her resignation and only serving 44 days, uh, nonetheless, she will be entitled to a lifetime pension of 115,000 pounds a year. 
115,000 Great British Pounds a year. I think that's now maybe slightly less than 115,000 US dollars, maybe slightly more. The pound has taken a bath. Uh, nonetheless, she will have that money now for the foreseeable future. Uh, that is uh, even better than what members of Congress here in the US get. Of course, we have heard of situations here in the US uh, where members from Congress get pensions. As of 2019, I did some research on this. Uh, a congressional pension is fully vested after five years of service. A full pension is available to members 62 years of age or older with five years of service. Uh, 50 years or older with 20 years of service or 25 years of service at any age. Uh, and there are other arrangements as well where they can have full health care for life and all of that sort of thing coming from Congress. And so uh, that is uh, something that is... Uh, really shocking. While we're on the topic of Britain, somebody says here in the chat, Jacob, what do you think of the SAS regimen and the people uh, who try to claim they are more elite than CAG or and DevGrew? They are insignificant, in my opinion, and have much less experience with weapons. Uh, well, when you look at the SAS, what made them kind of unique is that they were one of the first dedicated high-speed hostage rescue units. Back then, the term counterterrorism and hostage rescue were basically synonymous in sort of the 70s, even late 60s, uh, into the 80s. The two meant the same thing, because basically the modus operandi of terrorists was that they would take hostages, and then they would make a series of demands, whether that be release, release their terror compatriots from prison, whether that be give them money. That was basically what terrorists did. In fact, if you look back to the 1970s, the number of hijackings that took place on international flights was just out of control. I mean, you've heard about the raid on Entebbe, but there were so many plane hijackings that took place uh, back in the 70s, even into somewhat in the 80s. And this was carried out by terrorists. And so uh, between the SAS and the German GSG-9, they were called, these were among the first units that really developed uh, tactics and training around how to deal with those situations. Now, when we look back at what they did, I mean, a lot of it's really goofy. You would see uh, SAS guys, and how did they aim their, MP, their MP5s? Well, they didn't put stocks in them a lot of times. What they did was they would use the sling and extend tension against the sling. And in the absence of holographic uh, or, or red dot sights like we have today, they would actually have a mag light, you know, a big giant flashlight on top of their MP5s. And they would use the flashlight both to illuminate the target and to aim. And basically where the center of the light was, that's where they shot. I mean, so so in hindsight, it's it's really kind of goofy, some of this technology, but they they made the best of what they had. Now, in the early days of setting up uh, Delta Force and setting up uh, the FBI's HRT, they were very much highly dependent on the SAS to transfer some of these very early TTPs or tactics, techniques, and procedures uh, into uh, these units. So uh, the man who started a FBI HRT, he's now written a book, talks about how he actually went over there with SAS, lived with them for, for months at a time uh, to try and transfer some of that over. Now, in the modern era, I would say that the SAS still remains primarily a hostage rescue kind of group. Uh, they have branched into other missions. They have built out other capabilities. But when you look at, you know, what, say, uh, development group, or I think now it's actually, they've renamed it once again to TAC Devron for the civilians out there, or, of which I am one. We're talking about SEAL Team 6, really, uh, is what we're talking about. 
they have uh, a much broader range of capabilities. Yes, there's the hostage rescue capability, whether it's on boats or whether it's, uh, you know, Captain Phillips situation or whether it's uh, on a plane that's landed uh, or in a building uh, combat applications group or Delta Force, same thing. Uh, but this is uh, something in which they have built much broader mission sets that they can complete besides just basically what amounts to indoor gunfighting, hostage rescue, SWAT team type stuff, essentially. So SEAL Team 6 has a, a, a much broader set of things they can do. Of course, they're very good at CQB, uh, Combat Applications Group, or Delta Force has a low visibility component, uh, special min- mission units which are designed to go in plain clothes and essentially undercover uh, solo in some cases to uh, do various elements of reconnaissance and uh, uh, sometimes uh, snatch and grabs of uh, both items and individuals, you name it. So in any way, I would say we have surpassed them and they are, they are, like you said, kind of irrelevant on the world stage, both in terms of their competence, but also their, just what they get an opportunity to do. I mean, some of these people are very good. You look at the, the situation of Christian Craighead. He was a British SAS uh, operator who happened to be in Nigeria doing a dual training mission. Boko Haram terrorists take over a shopping mall. Look up Christian Craighead. That's not even his real name, by the way. I don't know what his real name is. But you look up Christian Craighead. This is a story of a guy who happened to be training there. Terrorists start shooting up this mall. He basically grabs his rifle and his plate carrier out of his truck uh, that he was there for a training mission and basically takes command of the Nigerian local police and military that were on hand, takes command of the situation moves them through, liquidates the terrorists. I mean, so in his case, clearly this is a guy who knows what he's doing. A lot of uh, the, the question of how good are they just comes down to the question, it just comes down to whether or not they get the opportunity to showcase their capabilities. So um, that's how a lot of this goes. Um, okay, so just uh, answering questions here while we're on the topic of the UK. Uh, Jacob, since we have seen a collapse in stocks, well earning as staying strong. Do you think that we will see another dip from earnings collapse? We could. I don't know. I mean, I just I just don't know where the economy is going to go. It's too uncertain. I can tell you that right now, the risk-adjusted returns have started to look a lot better in the bond market. This isn't financial advice. I'm just telling you my observation. They started to look a lot better in the bond market uh, than they do in stocks. But, um, you know, I think that basically if you're a long-term investor, as most of you are, you just stick to your strategy. If you buy stocks every month, enjoy the lower prices. I think that's basically how you have to think about it over the long term because uh, I, I can't purport to be able to time the markets and I don't really know anybody who's who's been able to do that consistently over a long period of time. Uh, and so what you have to do is have something resembling a systematic approach. Okay, I want to talk about this story here of Igor Danchenko. This is the principal source for the Steele dossier. He was charged with lying to the FBI about the nature of, A, the information, of course, but also uh, what his sources might be for that information. He was charged by John Durham, the special counsel appointed by Trump to look into malfeasance within the Uh, special counsel's investigation, the Russia investigation of Trump. And he was acquitted on Tuesday 
this is the report from the Washington Post. A jury on Tuesday found Igor Danchenko, a private researcher who was a primary source for a 2016 dossier about allegations uh, against former President Donald Trump's ties to Russia, not guilty of lying to the FBI about where he got the information. The verdict in federal court in Alexandria, Virginia, that would be the Eastern District of Virginia, for those of you who don't know, is another blow for special counsel John Durham, who has now lost both cases that have gone to trial as part of his nearly three-and-a-half-year-long investigation. Durham, who was asked by Attorney General William Barr in 2019 to review the FBI's investigation of the Trump campaign in 2016, is sure to face renewed pressure to wrap up his work following the verdict. Uh, I don't know whether that's true or not, whether he'll face renewed pressure. Uh, I do know that for years now, for two years plus, in fact, I remember saying this in the summer of 2020. It's, it's weird when you do shows like this every week and you write the show every week or now two shows a week, you have certain memories about news items and, and when you covered them. And, and sometimes you're trying to think, when was that? And it, it, you have to think about where you were when you were filming it. And anyway, it's uh, it's something where I always said, do not count on the Durham investigation to turn up corruption, to secure convictions. I mean, we know what has happened here. There's been two trials, and both those trials, are both against Sussman and against now this Igor Danchenko, he had him dead to rights guilty. But the issue is that in this area, the jury pool is basically rigged. I remember, I mean, knowing this, but the first time I saw it in person was in 2019 when I was at the trial of Roger Stone. And I could just look at this jury until they were corrupt. I could just look at the jury until they were corrupt based on their facial expressions, based on the fact they weren't listening when Stone's lawyers were making their case. You could see it on their face as they as they had this this angry scowl at Roger Stone. And then, of course, even more shockingly, they read off the verdict, and he was found guilty on all counts despite so clearly uh, not committing the crimes which had been alleged. Now, of course, later on, I was the person to report that in the jury questionnaires there was corruption. I'm the guy who turned up those jury questionnaires, and I faced a heavy price for doing so. Now, they weren't given to me by Roger Stone or his lawyers or anything else. I turned up those documents through uh, legal, ethical, hard-nosed journalism. That's how Jack Berkman and I secured those documents. Roger Stone could never give us those documents. They would have him in jail so fast you wouldn't believe it. They'd have his lawyers in jail so fast you couldn't believe it. I mean, obviously he couldn't do it. And they have, you know, they're stamped with certain things to, to know who got the documents and all of that. I had courtroom originals, all the rest. So, uh... I won't reveal my sources, but I did secure those documents, revealed that the jury was in fact rigged, as if you needed any proof of that, and it led to Trump commuting Roger Stone's sentence, as we know, just before he was set to uh, report to jail for four and a half years uh, after being sentenced by Judge Amy Berman Jackson in the District of Columbia. So that's the first time I saw how this worked in person, where they put... Uh, a Democrat IRS lawyer on the jury. You're not supposed to have any lawyers on juries. Everyone knows that. They put an IRS lawyer. They have uh, people who say they know who Roger Stone is. They don't like him. They have people who say they don't know who he is because they want to get on the jury. And then guess what? You have tweets from these people saying how much they hate Roger Stone. So the point is, in these areas, as if you needed 
a federal trial to be any more rigged than it already is, structurally speaking, because of the fact that the judges are very biased towards defense. We talked about why that is on the show before. Don't have time to go into it now. Uh, And as if you need it to be any more rigged, they actually do rig the juries. The Eastern District of Virginia is in Alexandria. It's just across the river from D.C., across from National Harbor, Maryland, really. Um, And it's a place that is known as the Intel Court. So when you have a case like the Assange case, when you have a Snowden case, a, a, a leaker within the Intel community, that is brought in the Eastern District of Virginia, and they get spooks on the jury. They get CIA employees, they get FBI employees, etc. That's how this works. So they bring this case against Danchenko, and it is all but a foregone conclusion that Danchenko will win at trial, just as Sussman won at trial. And I believe the case against Sussman was brought in the District of Columbia. I, I could be wrong. I don't have it in front of me here. But um, the, the one conviction that uh, he did secure was against a lawyer named Kevin Kleinsmith. This was a lawyer that was a simple documentary crime. What he did was that the CIA had sent an email uh, to the FBI saying that, basically to him, saying they had no evidence of Russia collusion. And he edited that email before forwarding it to his superiors, in which he said, we do have evidence of Russian collusion. It made it say exactly the opposite. He admitted to that, and he was given, you ready for the sentence in his case? Ready? He was given a $100 fine, a $100 fine, and 100 hours of community service, no jail time. That's what he was sentenced to after pleading guilty in that case. And, of course, because he had committed a felony in the commission of his uh, legal practice, because he had done that, he, had, he committed a felony in the, in the commission of uh, him practicing law as a lawyer at FBI, he was uh, disbarred. But guess what? Just a few months later, a few months ago, in fact, uh, the FBI restored, uh, not the FBI, the, the D.C. bar restored Kevin Kleinsmith's status as a lawyer. He is now all set to uh, practice law, has been for a while, and he will, of course, be lauded as a hero within the Democrat Party for what he did, even though it was criminal, and he admitted that it, that it was criminal. And I'm sure he is now making uh, good money as a Democrat lawyer. I haven't looked into it. I'll, I'll have to follow up on that. Maybe one of you can send me an email, uh, jacob at jacobwool.org, to... Uh, look back into that. But it's just amazing. And and so this is why I have said that uh, charging Hunter Biden with crimes as far as which box he checked, uh, whether he was currently addicted or not currently addicted when he bought a gun or how he disposed of a gun or whether or not his uh, tax misconduct is criminalized. It's just absolutely foolish. It's absolutely foolish. You want to bring a case against Hunter Biden in Delaware. Really? It's foolish. And, and I think that prosecutors have a duty not to waste uh, public resources bringing cases that they are certain they cannot win. I, I think that that is what prosecutors owe the taxpayer. It's what they owe as far as their legal and ethical duties. So charging Hunter Biden is a case you can't win, obviously. It is uh, so clearly a case which is uh, political in nature. And what I say to all this is that I don't ever sit here and, and cheer on prosecutors. As somebody who has been the victim of political prosecutions, uh, so clearly political prosecutions, I'm not somebody who sits there and cheers them on. I mean, whether they come from one side or the other, sometimes you need to bring political prosecutions as a way of achieving parity with the left, as a, as a way of achieve, achieving deterrence, as a way of stopping them from doing the same because they know what could come back their way. Obviously, that's true from a political warfare standpoint. But what I can tell you is, 
you know, I don't root against the people that end up being the the unfortunate victims of these political prosecutions. Because let's be honest, Igor Danchenko, he's a Russian national. Does anybody have any doubt about his guilt? No. But if we were really going to be charging misconduct, you'd be charging Robert Mueller himself. You'd be charging James Comey. You would be charging Gina Haspel. You'd be charging these senior people who uh, forwarded this Why? You would be charging Adam Schiff for leaking classified information time after time after time. None of that's happening because this isn't a real prosecution. This is a symbolic prosecution by Durham to take out a few low-level people who don't pay the price anyway. It's wasted millions of taxpayer dollars, and and it's something that uh, is just, like I said, it's totally foolish. It really is. It really is. Somebody says here in the in the chat, similar with the Chauvin trial and the live chat here on YouTube, uh, just flat out lying on questionnaires. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and why were those people drawn in the first place? Nobody ever finds out, but oftentimes that is corrupt. I had a YouTube channel of only a thousand, uh, made a joke about Muslims in London and got arrested and charged for a hate crime. Uh Six years ago. Wow. Jesus, criminy. Yeah, the UK is out of control. Unreal. Uh, it's just uh, it's just unbelievable. Um, so, you know, that that's what's happening with all of this. I, I, I Like I say, it's foolish to, to charge Hunter Biden. We're going to have more on the justice system later in the show or the, the lack of justice system. But there's this story out from Boston uh, University. Stories really from Zero Hedge, the report and Daily Mail here. But... Um, there is a report that Boston University has created a COVID strain with an 80% mortality rate in mice. The report here from Zero Hedge says researchers at Boston University have created a new strain of COVID-19 that has an 80% kill rate in humanized mice. In an effort to research what makes Omicron so transmissible, the researchers cobbled the Omicron spike protein to the original strain of COVID-19. The resulting virus was five times more infectious than Omicron. Uh, The new research, which has not been peer-reviewed, was conducted from a a team of, uh, uh, from Boston and Florida. So they go into why this might be. There's various speculation. You know, this is one of those stories that uh, could be really overblown. And so I don't want to get too over our skis on this so early. The research has not been peer-reviewed. We just don't know exactly what might bring this about. Why would it have an 80% kill rate in mice? We just don't know. We don't know. So I don't want to go too far over the tracks. I don't want to send people into panic. You know, Why would they create this strain in the first place is a very good question to ask. Uh, I know many people were commenting, wait a second, isn't gain-of-function research banned in the United States? Well, uh, as far as I know, it is banned, in fact, in the United States, but I don't know that this is technically gain-of-function of, uh, research. I don't know that it qualifies as gain-of-function research. I haven't seen any evidence that it that it does. It may. I don't know. I just don't know. I don't know many people who do. Uh, but one thing I do know is that on the surface, uh, creating these ultra-deadly biological weapons poses a big risk because all it takes is one slip-up. What's the upside? Well, the upside is you now know that you can do such a thing and that it kills mice 80% of the time. Well, what's the downside? Well, the potential downside's enormous. The potential downside is it leaks out, it's highly transmissible, and it's highly deadly. 
But the other thing we know about viruses is that it's very rare you're going to ever have a virus that is extraordinarily transmissible and extraordinarily deadly because those two things don't really comport. And as the virus evolves, generally what will happen is that it will evolve to be less deadly because from the virus's perspective, and of course viruses are inanimate, but they do follow evolutionary pathways nonetheless. And from the perspective of a virus, if in fact you want to continue to reproduce and you want to both reproduce within uh, one particular host and move on to other hosts, you don't want to kill that host immediately because then you're dead too. And so uh, what we know is that the most transmissible viruses, like the common cold, are not especially deadly. And the deadliest viruses, well, they're generally not especially transmissible. That we do know. Uh, so these things are, are very, very common. Uh, somebody mentions YouTube censorship. Yes, I, I think that is very much the case. Uh, make sure to uh, hit the like button. I'm told that helps as far as uh, breaking through the algorithm here. One of the things they don't do, for example, on YouTube is send out the notifications to the subscribers, even if people sign up for them. Uh, but we are here live every uh, Tuesday, or rather every Monday and, and Thursday at 2 p.m. Uh, every Monday and Thursday at 2 p.m. live, and then it goes on podcast apps everywhere shortly thereafter in audio form. I uh, want to talk about a couple of economic data points here uh, that have come out and, and are somewhat interesting. Um, oh, by the way, be, before we move off the virus topic, I should mention that just yesterday, the CDC voted unanimously to add mRNA COVID vaccines to uh, the childhood immunization schedule. Obviously, these are not things you should give to your child. I mean, I, I don't need to tell you that. Do I really need to tell you that? But I will say one of the downsides of this is that uh, adding this vaccine to that childhood vaccine schedule, it's going to serve the purpose of delegitimizing many of those other vaccines that are safe and are effective. And so what you're going to see happen as a result of this very foolish decision to do this, already look at the market. They're not uptaking these vaccines into children. Something like 25% have ever gotten their child even one of these shots. A very small percentage, like 1% have ever gotten their children the boosters. People are not giving these vaccines to their children. They just aren't. That's the marketplace. Some people are, very few. Uh, and so by putting these uh, vaccines into the childhood immunization schedule, it's going to serve the purpose of delegitimizing those other vaccines in the eyes of parents. And you're going to see the vaccination rates for things like polio, uh, measles, mumps, and rubella, uh, chickenpox. Those are all going, all of those rates are going to go down now because it's going to be, they're going to be viewed with the same suspicion that these mRNA COVID vaccines are. And, and that's, uh, you know, it's unfortunate that now you're going to have lower vaccination rates of polio say that while well, that vaccine works, it's effective, it lasts for life. I mean, it's safe uh, as can be, it seems, generally. So that's unfortunate and um, really, really causing a, a problem, really causing a problem. So um, anyway, well, you want to ask yourself why YouTube doesn't allow this show to break through the algorithm. Uh, look at that segment we just had there. That's part of the reason. I'm sure. Uh, so we go here now to some economic data, though. Uh, home buyer traffic has declined uh, to the lowest level since the start of the 2008 housing crash, down 61% year over year. That is the latest news out. Home buyer uh, demand has, has just absolutely collapsed. 
uh, to the lowest level since the 2008 housing crash. It was slightly lower during the absolute peak of the lockdowns, but that that spike returned almost immediately. As we saw, especially as people migrated from the north, uh, where lockdowns were worse, to places like Florida and Arizona and the Sun Belt. Uh, it, it looks like there's going to end up being a glut of inventory as well. Uh, the collapse in buyer traffic is coming just as builders have a record number of homes under construction. A record number of homes under construction. Uh, that is really remarkable because, of course, we know interest rates have gone up. I can tell you that the smaller players in the home buying or in the home building space, rather, were wiped out long ago. They were wiped out uh, really, uh, they, they were really wiped out like May and June is when, I mean, I'm just talking to clients of ours, middle market home buyers, the banks, you know, turned off the spigot for them back in May, June, July, several months ago. So when you have uh, buyer traffic down so much and you have now record inventory, that is a recipe for massive price declines, as we know. Now, that may be healthy, actually, for some of this market. It's it's, it's become so expensive. It's, it's remarkable. I saw a... Uh, is sort of a, a meme that was out. It, was, it wasn't a meme. It was a, really an ad of a home, a four-bed, two-bath home being sold in the uh, late 60s, I think. And the home, the mortgage worked out to be $86 a month. Now, of course, you have inflation and uh, $86 isn't what it used to be and all the rest. But if you look at the, the price of normal currency inflation versus housing price inflation, even though interest rates descended to record lows, it's not even close. Normal inflation does not account for the rise in home prices. A lot of things account for it, but normal inflation doesn't. And so it said, you know, if you're ever shamed by boomers who, who say, why aren't you as successful as they were at their age? And why don't you buy a house on this side or the other? Remind them that their uh, mortgage payment was the same price as your internet bill or less or less. And uh, that is the case in so many instances. So you say, what's a house worth? And it's like, what is, what is it worth to live in a house uh, as translated to, say, productive man hours? And, and like increasingly, the number of productive man hours that you have to put out to live, in a, to live in a house, whether you're buying it or renting it, is only even reasonable if, if your productive man hours are like, say, you're a mid-level and up civil engineer or above in terms of income strata. I mean, increasingly, it's like if you're not doing productive man hours and making $150 an hour or more, maybe $125, I mean, it depends on the part of the country, of course, you can't even think about living in a house. They're building a lot of apartments and things. You can live in an apartment. Those do the job. I mean, an apartment does the job for a lot of people, but, you know, if you want to have children, uh, if you want to have a couple of dogs. I mean, it's, um, you know, there comes a time when it just, the apartment appeal goes way down. And you never know who's going to be moving in next to you and your neighbor this year is great. Your neighbor next year is not so good. You move into condos, you have people jackhammering their floors half the damn year because they're bored and they want new flooring or what have you. So it's a, it's a vexing situation. Uh, U.S. home sales dropped for the eighth month in September. That's the eighth month in a row. Um, Market is expended, uh, expected to continue to uh, decline as mortgage rates approach 7%, up from about 3% a year earlier. Uh, 
so uh, it, it is really something else. Uh, looking at looking at what's happening in the housing market, you know it's not good. It's, I tell you, this housing market is not good for people who have bought three and four houses. Um, it is good for people who might want a buying opportunity, and if you see housing prices come down to a reasonable level, I think you probably got to take 30, 40% out of a lot of these really hot housing markets. Many of them have lost 15% in three months. I mean, they're way down. You probably have to see more come out of them. And maybe you'll get the prices you want. Maybe you get the mortgage at 7%, figure out a way to pay it for a while. And if mortgage rates go back down, you can refinance or figure something out. But, um, you know, I, I just, the, the prices, I mean, the prices per square foot are out of control. Whatever the overall affordability picture begins to look like because of interest rates, it looks like. But if interest rates go up, say, you know, 3%, and uh, you can properly figure something like this out and, and prices are down 40, you might have a buying opportunity. Then again, too, you might have to see the Fed lower rates. You may have to see, uh, you know, the bond market start to see some buying again and, and rates go down vis-a-vis -vis the free markets, not just vis-a-vis -vis the central banks. That can really... Uh, uh, bode a good opportunity for, say, young people who want to start buying up uh, some real estate. God forbid, right? Uh, and, and the other part is, remember, you're going to have something of a housing glut by virtue of the fact that the boomers are getting older. Um, many of them don't want to live in a large house as they become 80 years old because they don't want to hike upstairs. They're selling these houses. I see it all over my area. Uh, of old folks who are getting into their 70s and 80s, they don't want a big giant house. They want to move to a one-story place in Florida or they want to move to a condo or something that's just easier uh, from a management standpoint for them. It's it, They can't keep up with it. The, the chores, the moving around the house, it's too much. So they're, they're looking to move out. Uh, you're also going to have people die and, and those homes become available as well. So uh, I'll tell you, I, if I were a holder of real estate right now, or just a big real estate holder, I would not, that's not a position I envy. You know, BlackRock buying up all those homes, you know, that's great when prices are going up. We'll see how it works when prices are going down and when supply is going up, as looks like it will be the case here very shortly. Um, changing gears here, I told you we'd be back to the justice system in a sense. We have this clip out of uh, uh, Joe Rogan. He's talking to somebody on his show and he's talking about the justice system. And I thought to myself, man. I know you have to know a little bit about a lot to do a show like that, an interview show, but yikes, does he not know much about the justice system? And probably for the best. I mean, it, it, usually if you know a whole lot about the justice system, uh, you wish you didn't, okay? The, the, the experiences you've been through are, are ones which uh, you would, you know, trade those for and not have the know-how. So I, I don't necessarily blame people in all cases, but... We look at this clip here, and I want to just play this for you, and it's, it's kind of revealing. Like if there was a Wild West-type neighborhood for white people, mm -hmm. white people are shooting people the same way people are getting shot in the south side of Chicago, they would be freaking the fuck out. Can you imagine if there was a place like that? Like if Tucson, Arizona was just like shootouts in the street. I mean, what, on a, a, a weekend of gang violence in Chicago is, is occasionally <coughs> stunning. Yeah. Stunning numbers. Yeah, there can be like 50 people shot in a weekend uh, at its worst. Imagine you know? if that same scenario was playing out in right-wing neighborhoods, in right-wing, mm -hmm. all-white neighborhoods, if they were basically like fucking Jesse James in it mm -hmm. and just out there shooting each other. 
We have very, very different discussion. What would happen though? Would it be? Okay. So it's, it's, it's a question of imagine if that existed. And the thing is you, you figure the country's mainly white. So surely this kind of endemic violence must exist somewhere. And in fact, there are areas of the country that are all white in which, uh, they are much more poor than they than people are on average in the south side of Chicago. They have much less opportunity for jobs. They're not in a city. Let's say it's a rural area or, or, or something approximating a, a rural area or a city that's in the middle of nowhere, a small town. And they're much more poor than the south side of Chicago. There's much less opportunity. There's much less government help. There's much less infrastructure. You can't just get on the subway and go to a university. Not even close. And And do you see the violence? No, you don't. You, in fact, if you look all around the world, I mean, there are countries you can go to, and if you haven't had the opportunity, um, you know, maybe you try it at some point. Maybe you don't, uh, to be honest with you. But there are countries, and uh, you can go to white countries that are poor by standards that, that we can't imagine here in the United States. Okay, you you think you know poor, and it's like, yeah, that's poor. But you go overseas, and you can find a new meaning of poor. I mean, you, you go into small towns in Ukraine, for example, these are white areas, and they don't have toilets. They have outhouses in rural Ukraine. Yeah. You go to Moldova. Uh, that is a poor, poor country. Or the disputed border region of Transnistria. Or you go to rural Belarus. Or you go to uh, Albania is not exactly white, but you go to Albania. Places in the Balkans. I mean, these places are hopelessly poor. In fact, they're so poor that people just leave to try to do something someplace else. I mean, Moldova has lost like 25% of their population that just, you know, go to France and just, you know, sweep up leaves or something just because they they make more money sweeping up leaves. At least someone will pay them to sweep the leaves and they've got something. And and no matter where you go in the world, you, you don't see white people committing the kind of violence that you see black people committing in the South side of Chicago. So when you hear Joe Rogan saying, imagine. It's like, why does he have to say imagine? Why does it have to be hypothetical? Why can't you find even one example of it anywhere in the world? You just can't. You just can't. On the other hand, if we say, well, you have this unique situation in Chicago. Is it because of inequities? Is it because of slavery? Is it because of uh, something that we've done unique in this country that has led them to be so violent? Well, let's ask that question. And, and, and the reality is, wherever you look in the world, you can find examples of people of the same background behaving in the same manner. Whether you go to South Side of Chicago, whether you go to Memphis, Tennessee, whether you go to Little Haiti in Miami, or whether you go to Haiti itself in Haiti, you go to Port-au-Prince, you go to Jamaica, you go to Ghana, or you go to Nigeria, or you go to Ethiopia, or you go to South Africa, or you go to a place that was never colonized at all, like Liberia. It's the worst of the worst of all examples, in fact. And so it's a remarkable thing that he's asking this question. Because it shows that, well, why does, he, why does it have to be a hypothetical? Why is it the case? And I can't answer that question, but it is the case, certainly, that you can't find examples of what he's talking about. Not even one. 
I just haven't been able to find a single one. And certainly there are areas you wouldn't want to be. I mean, you know, trailer park areas in Florida that are no fun, but you don't see 50 shootings in a weekend among the local white folks. Anywhere, anywhere in the world, you just don't see it. And so it's a remarkable thing, but I want to keep going here in this clip because it gets even better. More sympathy for them, or would it be more law enforcement because there's le- you know, less guilt involved? It would, be, it would be something different, that's for sure. Especially if they grew up in good neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. Imagine, imagine if they're like people from good neighborhoods with good education, like middle class, yeah. like no excuses. Well, and the, then there's always been this like insane galling asymmetry of like, you're caught with a dime bag in the hood. Meanwhile, mm-hmm. how many fucking Harvard kids are smoking weed in their dorm rooms? Oh, but even better yet, <laughs> how about... Actually, there's not that galling asymmetry at all. Nobody, it's like this just myth again that, that people are being thrown in jail because of dime bags of weed. It does not exist. If it's ever existed in isolation, I'm sure it has places in the country, it certainly does not exist today. You're not caught with a dime bag of weed and being tossed in jail to rot. It just doesn't happen. In fact, people are caught with huge amounts of marijuana, pounds, dozens of pounds, hundreds of pounds. And only in a state like Utah might they be charged with interstate trafficking. Only in a place like that might they be charged with anything. And so this this myth that the police are hunting down black people to, to find dime bags of weed and then take them off of take them off to jail to, to feed them and clothe them and 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 shelter them for months because they had a dime bag of weed. No, it it just doesn't exist. It's not true. It doesn't happen. It only happens in their fantasies and in perhaps some movies they've seen or TV shows, but not in real life. In real life, that doesn't happen. In fact, in real life, they can actually get away with murder. You look at the South Side of Chicago. Only. I think half of the shootings ever result in anybody even being arrested. That means most of the time you get away with it. So you can actually shoot people and nothing happens versus this myth that you go to jail for a dime bag of weed. It's just, man, the things you people believe. The crack laws, you know, Yeah, Dr. Carl Hart. Meanwhile, how many fucking Harvard kids are smoking weed in their dorm rooms? Oh, but even better yet, <laughs> how about the crack laws, you know? Yeah. Dr. Carl Hart is uh, outlined this so so perfectly because that's the guy that does heroin, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. he's amazing. He- he's amazing. Yeah, that's the guy who does heroin, right? Yeah, he's amazing. Does heroin recreationally, but he's amazing. Good guy. Whoa, he's a fascinating person. But one of the things that he said, Dr. Hart said, like it's the same physiological effect. As cocaine, but if you get arrested, mm-hmm. completely different sentencing structure. Yeah, if you- that's not true. In fact, it is not true that the same physiological effect takes place with crack versus cocaine. It is not true. It is not true. As we know, the effects of crack are much more like the effects of crystal meth, with the exception that they don't last as long as the effects of crystal meth. What happened was that when the crack epidemic broke out in the 1980s. Prior to that, the same people were using heroin. They started using crack instead. When that crack epidemic broke out in the 80s, it was the Congressional Black Caucus. It was black lawmakers from these districts who demanded that federal laws be passed and, in fact, demanded that state laws be passed as well, which instituted mandatory minimums to treat crack cocaine 
the way that methamphetamine is treated. Now, remember, crystal meth, most of the uh, suspects are white, remain white, some Hispanic, a lot of Hispanic these days as far as smuggling into the country, but especially that time, white, okay? And it was Maxine Waters, and it was the rest of the black lawmakers in Congress who specifically demanded that crack carry bigger sentences because it was destroying their communities. Carry the same sentences as meth because it's more similar to meth and has a lower pricing structure like meth, which makes it more uh, pernicious in the community. Another huge myth is that uh, crack has higher sentences to be racist, just for the sake of being racist. No, no, it was black lawmakers that demanded that because black uh, communities were being ripped apart by crack. So it's just another one of these myths. And anybody, any doctor who says that the physiological effects of crack are the same as that of powdered cocaine ought to turn in their medical license. But then again, it's the same doctor who uses heroin recreationally. Uh, so God only knows uh, what else that doctor might think or prescribe or do. God only knows. You get arrested with crack, there's minimum sentences that they have to put you away for. If you get arrested for... And by the way, not anymore, really. It, 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 you don't get arrested with any amount of crack and get a minimum sentence. No. If you're distributing crack, maybe. Coke, it's fucking nothing. Yeah, that's probably... It's not nothing for Coke. That's the other... It's not nothing for Coke. What's he talking about? The, the most galling example I know of, of a of an allegedly colorblind law that ends up having a massive disparate impact massive. on people of color. Massive. Um, I'm sure white people do crack too. I know white people have done crack. Yeah. But the difference is <clears throat> that has infested and destroyed black communities, and mm -hmm. they know that. Mm -hmm. And so to handle the overwhelming amount of crime, instead of addressing it at a root level, they just decide to just put everybody in a cage, right. which is crazy. Well, instead of addressing it at a root level, people always say it's an either or. People have tried to address, say, why are communities falling into crack addiction at a root level? The issue is none of those things seem to work. Maybe there's this way of doing it. Maybe there's that way of doing it. It's all been tried. There's been tens of billions of dollars spent in the same neighborhoods that were piece of crap neighborhoods in 1985 are piece of crap neighborhoods today, almost without exception. Unless they've been, quote unquote, gentrified, but by the way, most of the time, the people that are most scammed by gentrification are the people who move into the gentrified neighborhood thinking it's going to be nice. Like, for instance, I think about Northeast Washington, D.C. This is an area where, quote unquote, gentrification took place, where what they did is they extended nice areas into some areas that were dumpy and built kind of high end, at least in terms of their construction and appearance, condos in that area, apartments, etc., a bunch of yuppies move in. People complain that's gentrification. But I'll tell you who gets screwed in the deal, the yuppies who move in, because they are just victimized by crime relentlessly because they thought that, well, suddenly there's a nice apartment here. That means that the people who are now just a couple hundred feet away, a couple hundred yards away, two, three, four blocks away, aren't going to come here to, to steal my stuff, to break into my car, to rob me, to rape me, to loot my home. And they were wrong. I mean, one of the areas where this took place is Navy Yard. Navy Yard is a neighborhood of Washington, D.C., another one I can think of kind of like this. And it didn't really have any housing. It was just kind of, uh, there wasn't a lot there. 
now there's been apartments going up like there's no tomorrow. I mean, the, the cranes are just uh, everywhere in Navy Yard. People move in there. And, you know, by and large, it's not as though uh, the problems emanate from within. But the issue is you have these yuppies there. And it's right across the bridge from southeast D.C. They come over the bridge. They commit crime. They go back across the bridge. They bust into your car. They rob you. They shoot you. And then they go back across the bridge. So the people that have been hurt by most by gentrification are the people who were scammed into buying or renting residences in these quote-unquote gentrified neighborhoods. They aren't actually gentrified. They're just a nice-looking house in a place that's still dumpy or at risk of being victimized by the dumpy neighborhood next door. Okay, so that's a gentrification. Now, I will talk about an area where the justice system is really uh, extremely, extremely uh, unequal, where you face a very different fate if you're a, a, a measly individual as compared with a uh, maybe a massive corporation. Before I get to the breaking news that, that highlights this so well, I want to talk about an example here just to kind of paint the picture. And this is a a man uh, named Jonathan Guerra Blanco. I'm going to tell you about him just briefly. Those of you watching I can see him on the screen. According to federal prosecutors, Blanco, a Cuban-born uh, U.S. naturalized citizen, was an ISIS propagandist. Guerra, also known as Abu Zara al-Andulazi, communicated with three FBI undercover agents as well as an FBI informant. He believed that these four people were affiliated with ISIS. They were not. They were merely three FBI special agents and an additional person who, as I understand it, basically served as a translator, um, somebody who could speak on the phone with an Arab accent and kind of make the whole thing seem a little bit more real. So you have uh, Mr. Blanco, Cuban-born U.S. naturalized citizen, and he's clearly a very troubled individual. Uh, he's some uh, Cuban guy, lives in uh, Miami, basically, and he's getting involved with people who he believes to be uh, affiliated with ISIS. And basically what he claimed to be able to do was uh, help them send out propaganda, uh, help them send out uh, press releases uh, to the U.S. media, basically send emails and he adopts this goofy-sounding name, Abu Zara al-Andulazi, or Andalusi, Andalusia is what it should be. I mean, obviously, the guy's a lowlife. He's a troubled individual, whatever. Well, uh, for doing this, for getting involved with these F FBI informants, what happens is that he is arrested on a major indictment. Uh, they blow out a huge uh, press campaign about busting an ISIS member in the U.S. there in the Southern District of Florida. And, uh, you know, of course, with no other choice, given that federal trials are the way that they are, uh, this guy pleads guilty to a single count of attempting to provide material support or resources to a designated foreign terrorist organization, that being ISIS. And he was sentenced to 16 years in prison. And we know this happens very regularly. There's a, there's a in fact, a database of it run by The Intercept. That's where this screenshot that you see here on the screen uh, comes from. And they run these kind of sting operations constantly. The reason that this is done is to keep the FBI garnering new funding uh, for their, quote-unquote, counter-terrorist operations. So 
generally every six weeks, they will run a case like this, whether it's a sting or somehow somewhat real, whatever it happens to be. And they do this constantly. They find these uh, troubled uh, young men, sometimes even young women, online, mentally ill, dumb, losers, whatever they happen to be, sometimes actually, you know, aspiring terrorists once in a while. They chat with them and then they charge them with conspiracy counts. Uh, this is something that happens regularly. So he is uh, sentenced to 16 years in federal prison for uh, chit-chatting online with these uh, FBI agents and their one uh, Confederate who was not a sworn agent. That's what happens. And it happens constantly to keep their funding up because busting actual terror plots, like the Pulse nightclub shooting, oh, that's a lot harder. They were in contact with the father. They didn't bust it. Stopping the Las Vegas shooting, eh, a lot harder. They don't seem to be able to do that. Evaldi can't do it. But doing these are easy because all you have to do is go in chat rooms and chit-chat with people, and you can bust them. And there are countless cases all over the country of these goofballs. And they may be dangerous someday. Who in the hell knows? But these goofballs getting uh, busted for chit-chatting in chat rooms happens constantly. They, they plead guilty on a single count. They can't take a trial. They plead guilty on a single count. They get 16 years. They get 15 years. They get 20 years. They get nine years. Happens constantly. But imagine you were a major company, and rather than just uh, chit-chatting with some undercover agents in a chat room, you had actually provided material support to ISIS. Well, there's a story out this week of a French massive industrial conglomerate that did just that. Uh, this report from NBC News, uh, the headline, French cement company paid ISIS $10 million to protect plant in Syria, Justice Department says. Lafarge, that's the name of the company, uh, paid ISIS from 2013 until the end of 2014 when the terrorist group was carrying out kidnappings and beheadings, prosecutors said. So they paid $10 million. And actually, we read here further in the report, it turns out it wasn't just $10 million, it was $17 million. So this French industrial conglomerate goes out and they pay ISIS uh, $10 million and the Al-Nusra Front, a, a similar terror group in the area, another $7 million, so the total is $17 million as this group is uh, kidnapping Americans, beheading Americans, Brits, Westerners, as, they carry, as they're carrying out and, and planning to carry out terror attacks all over the world, the airport in Denmark, the San Bernardino shooting, the Paris terror attack in Lafarge's own uh, country, their own uh, main base of operation, and they pay them $17 million. No, they're not like this goofball who just goes and chats with people pretending to be members of ISIS and gets tossed in jail for uh, 16 years. No, they're, they're actually paying them tens of millions of dollars of hard cash, Hard cash. And what happens to Lafarge, uh, this company who does this? Well, they uh, have now uh, pleaded guilty and agreed to pay a penalty of $778 million to the United States. So they pay a fine. The company pays a fine. No individuals have pled guilty to a crime. No individuals who do, will do one single day in jail. The company will not be barred from doing business in the United States. Nothing like that. Nothing like that. All they have to do is pay a $778 million fine, and all of this goes away very quietly. That's the end of it. That is uh, what has now happened. When you are a French industrial conglomerate with 
63,000 employees, $35 billion in assets. And that's just listed actually as of uh, 2014. The numbers are presumably much higher now. Uh, then what you're allowed to do is you can hand over $17 million to ISIS. And can you think of anything worse to ISIS at the peak of their power, just so you can keep one lousy uh, cement factory open, for God's sakes? I mean, what the hell? You lose a cement factory. Who cares? Maybe it was churning out $100 million or something, but my God, you, you, you fund ISIS? It's not like you're, you know, a mom-and-pop shop and... Uh, you know, you're going to lose everything in your whole family. You're a major conglomerate. And you pay $17 million in cash to ISIS. And you won't, nobody there will do a single day in jail. That's part of the deal. No jail. Uh, no individual will plead guilty. No individual will have anything on their record. Uh, all they will do is pay this $778 million fine, a mere drop in the bucket for that company. You can do this. You, you want to talk about in, in, injustices and inequities within what we still refer to almost in what approaches a farce as our justice system in this country, there you go. Some moron, loser, lowlife character can be, you know, sucked into chit-chatting with these agents. By the way, a lot of times they're, they're sexually seducing these men as they pretend to be ISIS wives or whatever the hell they're doing on these chat rooms. And you do 16 years in prison, um, arrested immediately, huge press release, but you actually send $17 million in, in hard cash to ISIS, nothing. You just pay a fine years later. Uh, Justice Department goes away. No issues at all. You, you may say, how is this possible? Well, I mean, of course, these companies pay huge law firms and have huge internal compliance departments for the purpose of muddying the waters, for the purpose of obscuring who actually gives the order to do anything that's even remotely in a gray area. That makes it very hard to make a case. You have the protection of France, of course, they would never extradite any of these officials to the U.S. They would never allow us to arrest anybody. They would never allow us to carry out a full investigation on their soil. would never happen. Maybe the most remarkable part of this whole thing is that the U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York, a guy who recently filed an amicus brief in some nutty lawsuit against me, claiming I'm a Ku Klux Klansman, well, he came out and said, Lafarge made a deal with the devil. Okay. Yeah, and, and you made a deal with Lafarge. So what does that make you? It's just amazing. And, and if you want to see real inequities in our justice system, you can find them. It isn't this imaginary thing where uh, black people get thrown in jail for 30 years for a dime bag of wheat. That's not real. It doesn't happen. But if you want to find the real inequities, you can find them. You can look at cases like the Lafarge case. You can look at... Uh, what has happened to Igor Danchenko or what hasn't happened. You can look at the fact that Kevin Kleinsmith is still able to practice law in the District of Columbia. You can find these situations. Uh, they aren't hard to find, and they're very real, and they have tremendously negative consequences for some people. Uh, the people maybe like those who were beheaded uh, by the ISIS members given all this cash by Lafarge. It's just remarkable. Just nuts. I mean, what we see here, I'm just looking at the chat here for any final questions or comments there before we wrap up the show. Uh, it's, uh, it's just, it's really something. It's really something. It's, um, 
growing a beard. Yeah, I don't know about growing a beard. That's not been my style. I've had something of, of kind of a partial beard on the show before, but it's just, I don't like to have a beard really. It's either too, they're too popular these days. It's just, uh, it doesn't set you apart. Um, thanks so much for the kind words, everyone here. Uh, come Monday, which would normally be the next show live at 2 p.m., I will be, uh, unfortunately, uh, with a court date in Ohio. So everyone say your prayers there. Wish me luck in Ohio uh, coming up on Monday. But nonetheless, despite the court date, what I will do is uh, either do a live show later in the day uh, when the, the court date has concluded, whether I have to you know bring the equipment with me or, or whatever I need to do, or I will uh, do an audio only or, or something. But the show will go out nonetheless unless they uh, take me out or something like that, uh, which I don't figure will happen. So uh, everyone, thanks for watching. Thanks so much for supporting the show. I've had some some great donations, most of them anonymous. Uh, MJ, again, coming in powerfully in the last episode to support what we're doing here. Certainly, it's uh, not easy to, to keep going when I come under the kinds of relentless attacks from the left that I have uh, in the two years doing this broadcast. But I will not relent. I will not stand down. Uh, I will keep telling the truth. I will keep providing you the service I provide, which is telling you when not to worry. That's mainly the thing. I mean, a lot of right-wing broadcasts even tell you to panic over every news story, to keep you hyped up, to keep your uh, amygdala swollen and all of that. Uh, but uh, some things are, are serious, some things you should worry about, and, and most of these stories end up being a passing interest. So thanks so much for watching, everybody, and I'll be back in some form Monday uh, with the show. We'll see exactly what time, uh, but then come Thursday back to our normal schedule. Uh, 2 p.m. live right here on YouTube shortly thereafter on podcast steps everywhere. Thanks for watching, and I will see you 